From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Oh man, Zach, it's like, it's feeling kind of weirdly normal. Like we're starting to. I don't know about yeah. in Seattle, but it definitely is here. I I mean, it's it's definitely, you're starting to sort of have that like, well, could we possibly be looking at not exactly a 2021 that as if 2020 never happened, obviously that that's not going to be the case, but right. you know, I mean, here in the, I think here in the, um, I don't remember if it's in Washington state or in King County, which is where Seattle is located. I can't remember what I saw, but you know, a full 25% of all people 16 and over are fully vaccinated. I'm that's lucky amazing. to consider to count myself as part of that, uh, cohort. And, uh, and obviously a great number more are, uh, in the process and um, you know we're very close to everyone being eligible so I assume it's sort of similar status in New York and a lot of totally places. that's it's definitely you know we're definitely heading there which is cool it's awesome uh, so what have you been drinking recently well you know it was anything, a big, tasty? Uh, anything delicious I, yeah you know it was a big weekend in my uh, in my life last last weekend uh, Friday my sister got married and my wife oh and wow congrats congrats yeah uh, so actually on Saturday, we had a very small family gathering to celebrate, um, and my dad made lamb, and I brought some uh, sort of Languedoc, so South France, uh, kind of like a Syrah Grenache blend, with, uh, I think a little bit of Mavet and Sinsona as well. Um, but, and, and it was great. It was a, it was a, a you know, import by Kermit Lynch, uh, who usually handles good stuff and all that. But what I really, what I really was going to talk about, and I think it's something that's been mentioned before, but it really just kind of reinforced... Um, how much more fun and sort of celebratory magnums feel. Um, I think there's like a little bit in the, the very nerdy quarters of the wine world, a little too much kind of like fetishization around magnums. You could read into that, whatever you want, but there is something fun about like a larger format bottle that just kind of makes those kinds of occasions feel just a touch more special. And it's also just nice because you go like, I don't have to worry if there are 10 people that like, if I open a bottle and everyone wants to have some, Am I going to get, you know, less than half a glass? Like, that's kind of right. a bummer. So, you know, the Magnum kind of allows you to have a full glass each kind of or close to it if everyone's drinking in that kind of setting. Um, and again, it just it just something about it. It's, it's two bottles of wine. It doesn't fe- doesn't seem that remarkable, but it, it seems to make a big difference in, in a way. How about you? What you been drinking? Gosh. So on uh, so I have an admission to make, which is I know I've I've stated publicly before that a Paloma is not a Paloma if it doesn't have grapefruit soda in it. But but on Saturday, uh, we were hanging out with a friend in the park and we were like, oh, let's make Palomas. And I ran to the bodega and they didn't have grapefruit soda. So I used, you know, sparkling flavored grapefruit water. I used Spindrift and it was pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. It definitely. I was like, "Wow, I actually like this a lot better." I think than how sweet the Paloma can be when it has, you know, the soda in it. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah. So I had that on Saturday, and that was pretty tasty. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I think last night I met up with a friend and and had uh some delicious wines but just like a bunch of random stuff some um you know of of you know one of these wine bars where i don't even remember the names of the things that we drank 
um, yeah. which is always Sounds like a good night out. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, that's always the problem is that like, you know, you, this is why I've always had this issue with like, you know, people saying, Oh, well discovery, you know, discovery happens in the restaurants. Well, so this is like, you know, I was out with a friend, we're at a restaurant, you know, we know the people at the restaurant, but we, we ordered wines, but I don't remember the names of them because I was just enjoying the, the conversation and the wine that was in my glass. And I was like, not going to pull up my phone and take pictures of the labels. Cause you know, I think we wound up between us having like three or four glasses of wine each yeah. and three or four different, bo- you know, and they were three or four different bottles cause we did buy the glass and I don't remember them. So like, I remember they were delicious. Like one was an orange wine. One was a light red, it was a Zeno Mavro, you know, one was, a um, was a Nebbiolo, but like, I don't remember who the producer was or what the wine was. Um, and that has always been the case for me when I've gone out to dinner for the most part. Whereas like when I, you know, have wine at home, I, you know, I'm looking at the bottle all night because it's sitting on my table. And, you know, if I forget, I could, you know, look up my receipt or things like that, you know? So I just think it's- Go digging it's in very, the recycling bin, whatever. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I, I've always thought that was so weird that, that, you know, at least prior to COVID, there was such this emphasis on the part of producers being like, we need to be in restaurants because that's where wine discovery happens. And I'm like, maybe you discover you like a region in the restaurant, right? Like maybe I have a Zeno Mavro, for example, for the first time. And I'm like, wow, this is- this is cool. Never had this grape before. Like I should look for more Zeno Mavros, but I don't know if you truly discover producers in the restaurant. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if you're the, if you're the kind of person who, who does pull out the phone and take a picture of the bottle and I've both served and been that person from time to time, um, you know, another thing you could do Adam, and I think it would be acceptable is, you know, you could reach out to the wine bar or restaurant and just say, Hey, you know, I had a really nice time there last night. Uh, you know, I know, I know I drank these kinds of wines. Can you just tell me, you know, what, because they're not going to have probably yeah. multiple glass pours of Xenomabra. Maybe they do, in which case, cool. But you know what I mean? They could probably give you the info if you're, you know, uh, so if you feel like, oh, man, I really want to know exactly which producer it is. But you're right that discovery in that context, and I think it's especially the case with imports, is more about varieties and regions than it is about individual producers. I think domestically, or, or at least maybe where the, you know, frankly, the names of the producers are more kind of things that are going to stick in your head uh, more than, you know, a, a, you know, a Greek name or something like that might be hard for a lot of consumers to to internalize, you know, after just having read it off a menu, um, and they might remember more the variety or, or the place. But yeah, I I'm envious. I have yet to have like uh, since COVID started a like a glass of wine or something out. I think it's it's coming soon. My yeah. wife and I, our anniversary is in May, and so we are uh, we're going to try and do some sort of some sort of celebratory dinner. Because obviously our anniversary celebration last year was dinner at home, which was the same as the night before and the night after. Um, and that might be the first time that we actually have like, you know, wine that isn't uh, <laughs> from our collection uh, in, in, you know, uh, over a year, which is uh, kind of wild. Yeah. Crazy, man. I mean, whew. it's it, it is it is really it is pretty amazing to do it because like, you know, sitting outside, first of all, the structures that people have built in New York are just amazing. Um, last night I was at Kindred who, you know, we've had the owners on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the structures that, um, that these places have built like Kindred are just so incredible and it feels really crazy normal. It's just, it's weird. I have to ask you a question, Adam, about this, yeah. cause I think it's sort of transitioned us into our topic anyhow, but I'm really Absolutely. curious is your sense both from the restaurant side and maybe just from the New York city residence side that all that stuff is going to stick like that, that they're going to be a permanent part of the city's landscape, because that to me is a fascinating, you know, conversation that's going on all over the country 
where in so many places, you know, they people have uh, taken up sidewalk space, even street space. Streets have potentially been closed or, or you know, greatly reduced in terms of traffic to accommodate outdoor seating. And I'm just curious, like, what is your read? Do you think that's going to stick? Yes, 100%, at least for uh-huh. the next year mm-hmm. and if not longer. Um, and I think it's going to stick because a lot of people, even who are vaccinated, like, you know, I'm vaccinated, um, still don't really want to do a lot of meals indoors. And who knows how long people will want to do that. And I think there will be an expectation for, you know, if you are going to dine indoors, there to be much more separation. Like, I don't know, you know, if we're ever going to go back to the time when you have restaurants where the tables are so close together that when you get up, you potentially could knock over, you know, the other person at the, t- you know, the table right next to you's wine glass, wine bottle, you know, plates bumping, you know, bumping into their table, all that stuff. I just don't know if we'll ever go back to that again. I mean, there was to think about what that used to be like, where you were sitting at a table indoors and like you could hear every, you know, you, you were basically a part of the people sitting next to you's conversation. If you wanted to, absolutely, you know, that I don't think is going to happen anymore. Um, People are very aware of space. And so the only way then for these restaurants to still, you know, be at numbers they used to do when they would pack everyone in like sardines is to allow them to have these outdoor seating areas. And a lot of these outdoor seating areas, um, you know, allow them to have even more seating than they had prior to the pandemic. Um, and at least from what I'm seeing in New York, most of the restaurants are investing like it's going to be permanent or at least permanent enough that it's worth the investment, right? Some of these structures are getting very elaborate. You know, you're talking Mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, running, much more what feels like permanent electricity to them. So, you know, they're taking them from, from their restaurant, they're going in the air with, with now, uh, you know, steel piping Mm -hmm. and then, and then going into the structures. So, you know, it's clearly above everyone's head. Um, You know, it almost looks like, like telephone pole, you know, telephone poles or whatever coming out of these restaurants into these structures, uh, you know, with really a lot of people are investing in like really beautiful lighting and nice tables. And now the structures close and lock in a very different way. Like, you know, I remember when, when people were first doing this, you know, like our, our friends at Alphabet City Beer Company, um, you know, Zach Mack posted that, you know, they, they had had stuff stolen out of their sidewalk structure because they didn't really build the things that you you could build at the time to really protect the structure. It was basically, you know, a, a platform with some sides and they would bring in the tables from, you know, inside, outside. Now people, you know, are investing in specifically, you know, chairs and tables that are for outdoor. A lot of them are now, you know, bolted to the, to the bottom of the structure. It's, it's pretty wild. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that the majority of people think it's going to be permanent because I know people are already negotiating with like their, like their next door neighbors. So for example, like if you are the way the city, at least in New York is treating this as my best understanding is you have access to the frontage that is, you know, your, your footprint of your restaurant. Not, I guess not, you know, the front of your restaurant, right? So you can take that space equivalent in the street where there would be a parking space. But, you know, if your next door neighbor is a, you know, barbershop or a nail salon or something and they don't need that frontage, you can actually rent it from them. Oh, cool. And so people are like negotiating, paying for that space and building larger spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen a few people who've done that. And when I've talked to the restaurant owners, they said, oh yeah, like we, you know, we, we pay into, you know, that landlord, um, yeah. which is interesting, you know, and I see people who are making investments. Like I said, like this is going to be the, like they're assuming it's permanent. So 
geez, who knows? But I, I'm hoping it is because it's, it's really it's a really nice way to dine. It really is. And it, it both combines, I think, two things that um, are really delightful in in lots of other places, including some parts of the U.S., but but less typically less common here. One is like dining outside, which you know for the most part is quite nice. And like, I mean, I think I think that's true too. Is like, you know, you do especially if you're dining in and around your your neighborhood or the, the part of the city you live in. You know, you do feel you know it's, it, you feel more part of the community in a way. You know, you see people walking by, you, you know, maybe see cars going by, maybe hopefully not, or people bicycling or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's something that, you know, you and I have both experienced, I think, in, both together and, and separately. Like, you go to a lot of places in in Europe and you go to the, especially the sort of centers of cities and, like, you know, restaurants, their dining areas sprawl into, you know, piazzas and squares and they're just kind of all over the place and, like, you just kind of, that's just kind of how it is, right? Like the, the point of these spaces that are public spaces is that they're used by the public. They're not parking spots. You know, that just is, right. I think, you know, I mean, this isn't a, you know, a, a, a transportation podcast, so I don't get too deep into it, but I think like it is, COVID has given us this opportunity to rethink how much space we dedicate in our cities to cars in all kinds of ways. And, and I, I would like to see, you know, less space for cars and more space for fun stuff like, restaurant seating capacity. Right. I mean, and I think what's so interesting about it all is that, you know, New York has always been trying to say that they, you know, we want less cars. So it, it's, it's kind of, it's fine. And that's, you know, I, I think that's a very good thing. And it is this opportunity to, like you said, you know, have these spaces that are really nice. Like, you know, prior to these structures, basically in New York, right? It was just like tables on the sidewalk. And that wasn't great for anyone, right? You had to get it approved by the community board. The community board had to decide if how many, you know, how much of the sidewalk they wanted being taken up. So like if you were, you know, the last restaurant on the block that had that applied to the community board, you may not ever get outdoor seating because the community board already decided, oh, well, there's two other restaurants already that have sidewalk cafes. You don't get one. And then also with the sidewalk cafe, you know, they weren't protected. So it's just an open table on an open sidewalk. Some people might like that, but, you know, it allowed for people to walk right up to you, right? So, yeah. I mean, you know, in, in a city that that does have a homeless population, that wasn't always, like, enjoyable for people to, you know, have someone who who'd come up and ask for money or try to sell them something or whatever. And now with these structures, like, you walk into it. And, yes, it is still open, but, like, there is – you are very much still in the restaurant, if that makes sense. And so there's like a, and you're not, no sidewalk space is being taken up. Yeah. Right. It's all in the street. And that's so great in so, for so many reasons that that's so great. And it's really cool to walk through neighborhoods that have really invested in these and just see how cool they are. Um, and what's been happening. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal, but that brings us to sort of the, the main topic of today, which is that there is this boom, right. But along with this boom is something that's happening that I think we're, it's being reported like it's it's a new phenomenon. I think what you're going to add to this conversation is that it actually isn't. We're forgetting yeah. about something prior to COVID, but that is that there's a lot of articles being published right now. The Times, you know, published one today actually about how there's a massive labor shortage. That basically all these restaurants that are reopening are having a really hard time hiring people. And I've heard that from everyone I basically know in the business in New York that they cannot find anyone, and the reasons for that vary, right? So like a friend of mine who was a SOM is not going to go back to work because she told me, you know, that the expectations of the places she's 
working at is that you're not just a SOM anymore. You also are yeah. running food and you also are taking orders and that's not what she wants to do. She wants to just be a wine professional. You had, you know, already predicted in an earlier episode that that was going to happen. Right. Yeah. So that is definitely happening, which, and so then a lot of wine professionals are choosing not to go back because of that, because they don't want to be waiters that are waitresses. They just want to be wine professionals. Um, there are other people who have found other good paying jobs, right. Or yeah. other things that they were into in the pandemic, right. They had a year to sort of reevaluate if, you know, restaurant life was for them. Um, and have found other things to do. Um, but I think the bigger thing, right, is that you told me when we were talking about this uh, on Slack prior to recording, like there was also a labor shortage before. Yes. I will tell you this. My very first published like article about food and drink was a piece, God, it must have been 10 years ago now, uh, here in Seattle about a labor shortage in Seattle restaurants. Kind of, I guess it must have been kind of coming out of the Great Recession. And essentially every every year since then it's just gotten worse. And I think the there are a lot of reasons that that this is true. And some of it is are things that has been exacerbated by COVID. And some of it are things that maybe this pandemic will in the after effects might mitigate a little bit. So I'm just going to give a little bit of background for listeners who might not, you know, like me, who are not in the restaurant industry and, and might not be as familiar. But one of the things that was happening in Seattle and in, I think in New York and San Francisco and in lots of other cities is you had a, a fundamental transformation of the restaurant industry and of the cities around it where the cost of living for for people who worked in restaurant jobs, like you used to be able to be a server, be even maybe a cook, although obviously cooks have always been paid less well, but but even just a front of house worker, a server, bartender, etc. And you could live in New York, you could live in San Francisco. Now, did you have a glamorous life? Maybe not, although you know, those jobs do come with their own kinds of perks in a way. But you know, you could you could have a you could have a, a steady job, you could potentially even have a family, um, if you that was a thing you were interested in. And we just saw as, you know, the tech industry grew, as rents got, you know, more and more crazy in, in those cities and others, that basically the, there was people who worked in, lived in, or sorry, people who worked in those cities in restaurants could no longer afford to live in them unless you were, you know, maybe if you had a partner who was, um, you know, made a lot more money than you, or you had, um, you know, you had an incredible deal on your rent, or you were young and willing to kind of eat top ramen every day or whatever, you know, like, but, but the idea of a career ish service industry professional, especially front of the house or even back of the house. Cause frankly, even, you know, sous chefs, chefs, et cetera, their you know, pay has not kept up with the cost of living in those categories, unless you're very successful. And, and it just drove people either to, you know, as we've talked about on other episodes to um, smaller towns and cities or out of the industry entirely. Cause they just looked at their, they looked at their, they looked at their bank accounts and said, I can't do this. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people here in Seattle that I worked with who now work for Amazon because they really just said, you know, like, I don't really want to do this, but they will pay me enough to live in Seattle. And I don't want to live an hour and a half away from the restaurant I work in. That's not a fun commute. Right. It takes away the whole appeal of being, you know, youngish or at least in an industry that kind of has that dy- you know dynamic element. And it's like, you know, if I want to stay in Seattle, I got to work for you know, Amazon, I got to get a, an office job of some sort. The places that I know who are being able to hire are the ones who have dramatically increased the pay. Yeah. And I think there's a way in which we may be coming to an, a different kind of equilibrium in the restaurant and bar industry than we had 
pre-COVID. And I don't inherently think this is a bad thing. I mean, there's a part of me that that bemoans this very real fact that we are probably going to deal with fewer full-service establishments than we yeah. had pre-COVID, both because of the labor issue and because to maybe because of the labor issue, the cost of labor is remaining very high. And if the and if the industry has more places that are counter service, casual, you know, whatever, I don't see that as inherently a terrible thing. But I do think that it does mean that we all, as as, as restaurant goers and, and whatnot, will will have to think about you know if you're going to go to a full service restaurant, you're going to pay for the experience. You know that 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 yeah. has always been true. But that in a lot of ways, it's just becoming more true. You know, you just can't, you know, restaurateurs can't, you know, it's harder and harder to to kind of not charge what you have to charge to have a viable business. And I think, look, we're going to see in this next year, right, how where, do does America as, as a whole put its money where its mouth has been about restaurants and how much they matter. And it's like, yeah, you know, you might have to pay a lot more. Um, I have another suggestion, but I but I definitely want to hear your thoughts first, Adam. And, and I'm curious specifically on one on one front because obviously one thing that I always thought was, you know, New York was always a little bit of an exception just because of the incredible density of restaurants. There was always going to be a labor pool there, but it sounds like that's not the case even in New York. No, I mean even in New York, people are having a really hard time hiring, and I think it's because yeah, there's like there's just. There's a lot of factors, right? One is that people realize they can make the same amount of money or better in other jobs. There are, you know, less people who also are willing to deal with the bullshit, right? So it's been yeah. a really hard year. Um, and I think, you know, going back to being on in a service profession where, you know, you're going to have a lot of people coming in with a lot of entitlement and with, you know, wanting to blow off a lot of steam. I don't think is that appealing to a lot of people. Um, you know, like if you think about it, right? Like at a lot of these restaurants, it's going to be like it's New Year's Eve every night for a while, right? People yeah. are, I mean, look, the, the which other thing, which, bad, right? Good, right. And bad. Like, like the other thing is that people who are going back are doing well. Like I was talking to a, you know, a restaurant owner recently who told me, you know, there's, there's a restaurant that they know of in Brooklyn that's, you know, making just massive, massive, massive amounts of revenue every weekend because yeah. people want to go out and they have a massive outdoor space and they're just making money hand over fist. You know, they're, they're selling really nice bottles of wine. They're, you know, they're selling multi-course meals. Um, and it's because the population that would go to this restaurant, you know, didn't suffer in COVID as we've talked yeah. about a bunch, right? They had white collar jobs that they were able to do from their, you know, basement, bed, second bedroom, dining room table, et cetera. And so they continued to earn and they also didn't spend on travel and things like that in the last year. So they have a lot of disposable income. And so, you know, like one restaurant I talked to says, you know, they're selling more, you know, a hundred plus dollars bottles, dollar bottles of wine than they ever have before. Yeah. You know, because people are like, well, I might as well splurge. Like I made it through yeah. And now I'm eating out and it feels like a special occasion, even though it's no one's birthday, graduation, anniversary, you know, promotion, et cetera. But it's just like we're here. And so they're <laughs> just like selling baller bottles. Um, but, you know, that all is like really also taxing on on a on a staff. Right. Like because you have people there who are, are, are becoming probably harder to deal with in a lot of ways. And then, you know, other people 
found new careers. I mean, like there is, you know, in the times anecdote about, you know, the, this sous chef who, um, who worked at Marlowe and sons in Brooklyn and was like, what am I going to do for the next year? I'm just going to sit here and like, wait to be a sous chef again. No, I'm going to learn computer programming. And he taught himself computer programming and moved to San Francisco, you know? And I think a lot of people did that. You know, a lot of people found new careers because they're, you know, it was, it was too up and down for, for too long. Where it was like, yeah. are we going to come back? Or are we not going to come back? Are we going to come back? Or are we not going to come back? And I think a lot of people are just like, fuck it. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to figure something else out. I always have wanted to do X, Y, or Z. And they did it. And and it's all coming at the same time. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point about there was an element of the volatility, yeah. especially earlier on in the pandemic. But but even, in, you know, through the beginning of 2021, until it became a little bit clearer that, you know, at least here in the U.S., vaccination programs are going to be, you know, ramping up and all that you know there was a ton of uncertainty when is you know our, our restaurants gonna reopen you know e- even if you know are people gonna want to go out and eat uh, you know there there's a lot you know especially indoors or or you know with you know without kind of all of the space cons- uh, considerations that we had last summer and i think for a lot of people you know and i'll include myself in this you know it was also a rude awakening of just how fragile the industry was. I mean, no yeah. person who worked in the restaurant industry, I don't think, had any idea that the entire industry could completely grind to a halt in a matter of days. That that yeah. was something that could, and and obviously, you know, yes, places did open for takeout, and you know, some places in some parts of the country were able to reopen relatively quickly or never fully closed, etc. But but for a lot of people, and especially in some of these big cities that we're talking about, it was completely outside of anyone's you know, field of vision until it happened. And and as a result, I think it just showed a lot of people just how fragile their situation really was. And obviously part of that is there were real issues with unemployment insurance throughout the country and and getting, you know, enhanced unemployment insurance for people. And, and obviously the political dynamic of that is its own thing. But again, I think it just, it showcased to so many people that I know that I worked with or that I'm friends with or, or whatever, they're like, hey, you know, this industry actually is extremely fragile. And even if we knew about its fragility on a sort of individual level, you know, I've worked with many, many people who were paycheck to paycheck, who, you know, one bad shift, one bad week, one, you know, untimely illness or injury put them in a really bad financial situation. I don't think we all understood just how fragile the industry as a whole was. And yet it caused a lot of people to just go like, you know what, I don't want to fucking do this again. And yeah, I like restaurants. Yeah, I like cooking or I like serving or bartending or, or being a psalm, but frankly, like, I don't want, I want a job where the next time a pandemic happens, I can, I can be the person who's sitting at home working on their computer, saving money, not the person who's scrambling to file unemployment insurance and, and hoping that it comes through. It just was, it was a stark reminder for a lot of people. You know what else, and you're making me think about this, you know what else was a big awakening for a lot of people, I think. And I think for, both for, for 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 people like myself, journalists who cover the industry, as well as for people who work in the industry, is there was no safety, even maybe less safety, in the big restaurant groups, and I'm seeing a lot of people who, prior to, if they are choosing to go back to work, prior to COVID, it was like a very cool thing to work for a large restaurant group, right? I mean, I don't want to name yeah. any of them here because I'm not trying to call any of them out, but I think we all know it's it's the ones that, you know, have like hospitality group at the end of their name or whatever. And they own, <laughs> you know, and they own 
12, 15 restaurants, right? And they also, you know, maybe are consulting in hotels across the country and whatever. They, you know, abandoned their staffs just as fast. And I think a lot of these smaller, you know, maybe they have one or two spots, right? Really took care of their employees and really fought to take care of their employees. And I think, you know, now when when there's so much competition and these employees are able to choose, they're saying, huh, it actually seems like it'd be more fun to work at a place like this. Yeah. You know, that's that's smaller, that's scrappier. I'm gonna make about as much money because it's so competitive right now. Everyone's basically, if you want someone, you gotta be willing to pay. Right. So I'm gonna go work there. So, you know, I mean, I, I know like great wine bars across the across the city, right? Who are hiring, you know, sums that were at two and three star Michelin restaurants in the city. Yeah. Because they just want to work at a at a great place to work. And like a lot of these, you know, wine bars really took care of their staffs and really fought for their staffs. And they, and they heard about that too, because that word spread. Right. And so they, they want to work there because it's going to be a better environment and it's going to be more fun. It's almost like, you know, when you had, what was it like after the dot-com crash, right? Sorry, not the dot-com, the the great recession. You had a lot of like um, young workers who were like, you know, fuck, I'm gonna go work at a startup. Like at least, you know, it's just as volatile, but at least it's more fun. And I feel like I'm part of something and whatever, like, cause I got screwed at a big company too. Yep. You know, like I lost my job. There was no, there was no safety net there. They didn't, you know, fight. They said, oh, we looked at the books, 25% cut headcount, you know, and yep. at least the smaller companies in the, in, in the great recession fought to keep their employees. And so yep. you said, had this huge migration of people to startups. And yep. I wonder if that's going to be the same thing where we're going to see this huge migration of the workers that choose to stay in the industry going from the large restaurant groups to the smaller restaurant groups or just, you know, the, the mom and pop restaurant. Yeah. Or starting their own. Exactly. I mean, we've certainly talked to a number of people on Next Round um, who were, you know, pre-COVID were working for someone else and decided, you know what, I'm going to strike out on my own. And maybe some of them had those plans in the works before COVID hit, for sure. But like, I think we're going to hear a lot of those stories of someone who says, you know what, if I'm going to deal with all this volatility, I might as well be doing what I really want to be doing, not working for someone else. I have one other point I want to make which is, I think, connected to this. And, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Adam. I have been thinking about this for, for the last year a lot. And I've been thinking about one thing that might make a difference in some of this whole conversation, I suppose. And it is that I think it would be good to think about as a society, whether it makes more sense to treat restaurants and bars and and, and that kind of enterprise a little more like we societally treat the performing arts, say where we don't necessarily consider that industry to be its sole purpose and focus to be uh, profit-driven. You know, we, rec- we, we see as, you know, in most places, that there is a, a, a broader societal benefit to having a symphony, uh, an opera, uh, to having spaces that are set aside for that kind of, um, you know, They've charged for tickets, obviously. It's not as if it's free, but, you know, the, a theater, et cetera. The idea that that there is societal benefit to having these things and that they are, whether it's through, you know, subsidies at various levels, whether it's through, you know, uh, lower, you know, costs in various ways. And that I think it would be good to think about as a society looking at restaurants and bars a little bit more that way. Not, I'm not saying that, you know, a, a restaurant or bar should have no... Um, you know, kind of responsibility to to be, uh, you know, financially 
efficient or successful, but that, you know, we've seen that we we want to treat restaurants and, and bars as essential businesses. You know, we certainly want to have, even in the throes of a pandemic, we want to have options for food and drink, whether it's takeout delivery or, or you know, out, outdoor dining or whatever. Yet, you know, what we saw so much over 2020 in particular was a sort of like, at best, uh, we'll maybe try to help you guys, I guess. Sure. Yeah, fuck them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe. And yes, again, some of that has to do with maybe the specific politics of 2020, and we don't have to rehash that. But I also think it, it goes to show you that, like, these industries are treated both by, are treated by the by citizens as, you know, essential, as parts of what we consider to be part of what make a place like New York, a place like Seattle, whatever, you know, the places you and I want to live and many, many people want to live. It's it's because of those things. And therefore, I think it's kind of incumbent upon us to say, you know, more than just support businesses with your dollars, because that's a really inefficient way to do it. But but that at a at a deeper societal sort of structural level, to provide some kind of backstop in the way that you see in a lot of European nations where where the and ha- some of that has to do with a, ro- a more robust social safety net broadly. But some of it is also just in those countries Dining and food is so central to the to existence that it would be that not supporting restaurants of all different types is just it's unthinkable. And and yeah. I think we are you know America doesn't have a long history of deep culinary appreciation. It's kind of a new thing, but it would be time for us to maybe consider. You know, I'm not a I'm not good at writing laws, so I don't have any idea what to do here. But but I think it would be good to talk about as an industry and maybe something we can talk about going forward you know, how are there ways to put in structural supports for this industry moving forward so that when the next crisis comes along, it, it is more stable than it has been. And that might also then bring labor back in. Because again, this lack of stability, I think, explains a lot of why people left the industry. And if you can say, hey, look, you know what, we we can provide the stability and not at the individual employer level, right? Because it's really hard on employers to do that. You know, you create really difficult uh, financial issues for employers when they when they have to be the ones backstopping, you know, um, unemployment and stuff like that. And, and instead doing it at the broadest possible level at this, you know, at the, you know, sort of societal level, I think makes more sense. Look, I think the smart city, I don't know if it'll happen nationally. I think the smart cities will do it. So of course, going, going back to like, before we started this conversation, but when we were sort of bantering about the outdoor shelters in New York City for restaurants, I think one of the reasons everyone's assuming that they will stay permanent is because New York understands that the arts and the restaurants are what attract people here. And I think the smart cities who are now saying, shit, we had this crazy migration of people leaving our cities. We have, we have, you know, offices that say they're not coming back. You know, the way they are going to get people to come back ultimately is creating places that people want to live. It's having exciting restaurants. It's having great theater. It's having, you know, amazing museums. And I think New York will, will realize this. Other places will too. I also am of the opinion, this is, I'm, I may be the minority here, but I think that in two to three years, there's going to be a lot of articles written. So I want to go on the record now. There's gonna be a lot of articles <laughs> written that say that, you know, that phase we went through where everyone was, you know, working from home after uh, COVID was a nice one, but we're also happy back at offices. I think that we are going to have a return to offices um, for the most part. I think maybe some jobs will, will be majority remote, but I really do think that, you know, in a year or two, when we really are through all of this and, you know, the, no one's wondering if they're still going to have to wear their mask at their desk, et cetera, 
there will be a massive return to offices. Um, there's just some sort of community that you get there that you don't get elsewhere. It's, you know, like we're, we're sitting here arguing that, you know, we need to be, we need to do education in person. And I think you're going to start hearing the same argument from certain kinds of companies. I know for VinePair, for example, right? Like we, we do better work when we're all together, right? We can brainstorm, we can come up with greater story ideas. We can, you know, help fix pieces. We can come up with, you know, huge package ideas. All that kind of stuff happens because we're in the same office together and everyone wants to come back. Um, and so when that happens, there are going to be cities competing for those locations, right? And competing for those workers. And the way that you get them is you have a place people want to live. If you don't, people will go somewhere else. And, you know, you look at the the places prior to COVID that really like did that with the breweries. I know we wrote a big piece a few years ago about how Roanoke in Virginia really like revitalized its entire basically city by becoming this, this location for breweries to locate, right? So and I think now they have like nine or 10 breweries in the city. And so it created this scene for people who like beer. And all of a sudden people wanted to live in Roanoke. Yep. And you had, uh, you know, startups instead of being like, oh, well, let's open an office in Roanoke. Like it's a cool place to live. There's a good quality of life. And that's going to be the same. And I think, you know, those, that realization, because it's always about money, right? That realization that more people means more tax revenue means better services will cause certain places like potentially New York, maybe Seattle to I think try to figure out how they can better support restaurants because they recognize that it is restaurants and bars are one of the best, the best recruitment tools for getting someone to move to your city. You know, Absolutely. yeah, a good sports team maybe, but like, you know, the Jets have been terrible forever and people still like living in New York. <laughs> you know, so it's it's not it's 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 culture and it's food. It, you know, culture, food and drinks is what it is. And so yeah. That's going to be, I think, a, a big realization. The problem is that so many people just, you know, screwed up so badly, um, yeah. you know, early on in COVID. But I, I, I want to think that some places will, will move to correct it. I think so, too. I think they will. Well, Zach, always a great conversation. Um, if you have thoughts, uh, you know, listeners out there, shoot us an email at podcastdivinepair.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know if there's something else, you know, you're interested in. Uh, we always love you know, hearing from readers. And Zach, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.